The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a mom to three girls, and I'm a CPA. And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance coach and athlete in Raleigh, North Carolina the father of three teenagers and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. 
Right on. Very good. Glad everybody was with us tonight. Let's go around the horn real quick. Eric, let's start with you. What's new and exciting in your life, man? We're about 90% moved in. Right on. Awesome. Very I good. Another, I think I got another 100 flights of stairs putting in <laughs> flooring in our house. I burned like 3,500 calories and I didn't run. <laughs> I think I got 27,000 steps. That was in one day. Of, of the three of us, you've had the best training and you've done, you, you had, you, you're probably the fittest and you've done the least amount of training over the course of the last <laughs> week. So yeah, very good. I, uh, I basically just said, this is strength training. So. I'm not going to even try to run. I went for a five and a half mile run last night with Grace, nine sixteen pace or something. I've never felt more sore. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But 90% y'all moved in like a week ago. So 90%, I was joking with you before we went on the air that like, I, we've been in our house for five years. I don't even feel like we're at 90%. So that's pretty good, man. We've got practice. We've done this a few times. Right on between military and South Africa and everything else. I'm sure you do have a lot of practice. Yep. Um, a lot of practice. And it should be mentioned, you are actually speaking to us from yet a different location inside your house. So I feel like we talked to you last week and you were in one place. And then I was on Discord with you for a ride that we did on Saturday and you were in another place. And now you're in yet a third location inside your house. That's right. I started on the floor <laughs> with my back against the dresser. And then during our ride, I was in the attic. It's mm -hmm. a nice open space. It has a window. So that's that's a first <laughs> for a ride for me. Um, you guys made fun of me because you said I'm going to be really hot. And I don't think you guys remembered that my bike has always been in the garage. So I've either right. been really hot or really cold. Right. So it won't be anything new. But now I have a window. <laughs> and now Progress. I'm actually, I'm in an office. I'm in an actual office with an actual desk. I can't remember. I've never done this for the podcast. Not once. <laughs> I've been in a car in New Hampshire. I've been in my kitchen. I've been sitting on the floor in our bunk room in our old house. I've never been at a desk in an office. This is new. All right. So if, if like Eric it. sounds better or worse, if he seems more insightful or less insightful, uh, it's it's due to the change in his environment. We'll have to see. Now, Michelle, what's new and exciting with you? What's new exciting with you, Michelle? I guess I'm here to talk about another interesting article that I came across this week. Uh, Trail Runner Magazine, an article uh, mostly titled women are underrepresented in exercise science and that is a problem. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was kind of poignant for our podcast because we talk a lot about, George talks a lot about research <laughs> news, um, research specifically, and it really just kind of highlighted um, the lack of female athlete representation in exercise science. And it's, you know, uh, a lot of the results and information that we read is not necessarily relevant for female athletes and you know the the studies themselves and the results from them can be misconstrued and what could work for an elite male athlete or a recreational amateur male athlete could actually be really disastrous and harmful uh for a female athlete so uh, we'll post a link to that and i just thought it was interesting and Anybody relevant. who likes the news and research part of our podcast should probably, you know, take it into consideration when we when we talk about these things. <laughs> Absolutely, no, I, I totally agree with you on that. And and I'm not I'm not um, I don't work in the field of exercise science. I work in the field of education and history. And so I can and, and in psychology and a few other kind of interdisciplinary fields that are all part of my field. But 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 I can say that that in psychology and in foundations of education, which is my field, 
for decades until like the 1960s and 1970s, basically until like the women's rights movements, um, they used predominantly male subjects and it was predominantly male researchers. Um, and they would find their conclusions and they would theorize and draw their evidence and all that sort of thing. And then they would, they would, uh, often I mean, they basically stated as an objective truth for everybody <laughs> or, or, or even worse, they would say, okay, well, this is what we found with this group of males. And so that must mean this other thing for women and, and their conclusions about women, which were, were, were totally just rife with all sorts of stereotypes and bias and stuff like that. Right. My favorite example of this, and I think I've talked about this on like literally 50 podcast episodes ago, maybe even hundred podcast episodes ago, um, is the idea about left brain and right brain. Um, and so, you know, some research was done that showed that men tend to rely really heavily on the left side of their brain. And so, and so they said, oh, well, women are so opposite from men, they must use predominantly the right side of their brain. Uh, and about 40 years later, somebody went back and said, let's actually do some research <laughs> and use some women subjects and see whether that's true. After like everybody had already adopted this idea that women must be right brain and men must be left brain. And they found out that actually women are whole brained. Women tend to use their entire brain, not just their right side of the brain, i.e. the opposite of what men are. But anyway, after the women's rights movement, like they, they then started, like were so worried about making bias things that they then started to generalize about the entire population. Like you just said, Michelle, um, where they would just say, okay, well, we found this for men. And so it must also be true for women um, because men and women are equal. And that's what we believe now. And frankly, that's not a whole lot better in a lot of ways. Um, and so we're now entering into a place, at least in my field, and we have been over the course of the past 15 years or so, where we recognize there is difference and there's need for more representation among researchers and research subjects and all that sort of thing. Um, and so it sounds like they're having a similar sort of come to Jesus moment in the exercise physiology field, which I think is good. Yeah. And I think specifically for exercise science, uh, you know, the article really brings it home. It says understanding and reversing the lack of female athlete representation in exercise science studies isn't just a question of inclusiveness. It could be the difference between good science and actively harmful misinformation. So 100%. And totally also agree. the article was written by Megan Roach, who was mm. co-author of our they like, second most recent book club book. So the roaches like haunt us. I feel like <laughs> we do. always come back to the, like, well, they are scientists, right? Like mm -hmm. she is a doctor. She is a scientist. He yeah. is very well-educated attorney. So I think, I think we, find their stuff because kind of speaks to our brains also. I think you're right. And I think it just happens to fall into the algorithms and, and they tend to write in some of the places that we tend to read because they are of similar ilk. I totally agree with you on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I read an article a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, this is a good article. Who wrote it? David wrote David over Roach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Everywhere you look. Um, so yeah, if they leave out any of their, their references to their dog, they're on point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no dog references here. So, so right on. Um, and so, yes, while we're talking about books, um, when are we going to, so we've said that the, this is the book of the quarter and we're coming towards the end of the quarter here. And so uh, if you haven't read Running to the Edge by Matthew Futterman about Bob Larson and Dina Castor and the Hamul Toads and Meb Kofleski, uh, do make sure that you go ahead and read that. Um, when are we going to discuss it? Y'all two weeks from tonight, is that what we're going to say on the 24th yep. around there? All right. So, so, so. So two more weeks, y'all. And uh, if you haven't read it, if you haven't finished it, go ahead and finish it over the course of the next couple of weeks because spoilers will abound on that day. Um, for my round the horn, I want to warmly welcome Michelle to the Everesting Fan Club. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here now. <laughs> 
Um, so as uh, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Everesting and the Everesting and, and Michelle always kind of rolled her eyes around it and thought it was kind of silly. And then this week, Eric and I get a text from Michelle in which she says, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it was an Everesting attempt. Yes, Michelle. but it was an Everesting attempt by Caroline Gleitch, who she is an ultra marathon runner, but she's most well known as a pro ski mountaineer um, mm -hmm. and an adventure athlete and an activist. And she speaks a lot about avalanche awareness and she's definitely one of my favorite people to follow. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, she climbed up and skied down 31,319 feet in 24 hours and 17 and a half laps. Um, and I just think that if I was going to Everest, I like <laughs> bring me my skis. I mean, my skis are currently in a closet in Vail, <laughs> but <laughs> if I had them here and I could find, you know, like I would, like I'm, I want, like this is, this really speaks to okay, me. Okay. So, 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 and I, I've never been snow skiing. I've never done it. Well, how, do you, how, do you, how do you actually climb up a mountain on skis? You I mean, I know downhill skiing, but ski how, how do you ski up? Well, you ski put skins. skins on your skis. What is that? What are skins on your skis? Where are skis? Oh, it's kind of like putting uh, fish <laughs> fish scales on the bottom of your skis mm -hmm. to where you can actually get a little bit of grip. So yeah, and the bindings in the board. back of the boots, like your heels. I mean, you're you're literally climbing on skis. So. They're like telemarks, yeah. telemark uh, bindings, and then the skis have this. It's made out of goat hair or something, isn't it, Michelle? Cool. And I don't know, but come on, this just looks amazing. Like, okay, so can you imagine so, how much fuel that took like oh, i wonder I what she I, ate i, 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 I just, can't well di didn't she actually list all the stuff she ate on instagram it was like um, the, i mean like, she is sponsored by cliff bar or, so she probably yeah. gave us a whole rundown of that somewhere but i don't yeah. i don't know i probably it, just it was a lot of nod over the fact that she was doing this and missed bars. all the details <laughs> Very good. now did um, she did she do it so she how many laps did she do it was like 17 and a half laps or something okay so it was a big hill then yeah that's a long downhill too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, very cool she is the first person i've heard of doing it on skis yeah and she's she did it i think out at brighton resort in utah let me okay. yeah so um yeah i was trying to figure out i mean i know Vail the best of, of any mountains i was trying to figure out you know where the longest way up and down so that you could do as few laps as possible but still so, get so you are you are actually what you're telling us is that you're actually starting to like logistically put together how you might attempt an Everesting on skis. Is that what you are putting out there on the Most Pleasant Zajin podcast here? Episode 171, <laughs> Michelle? I think it's fair to say that if I was going to Everest, my choice method <laughs> of doing it would be on skis. Okay. Yeah, this is badass. I want to do this. <laughs> okay. Good to know. 24 hours. So. so. Well, what? Do you want to go run 100 miles for 24 hours? So, What's the so, difference? Well, okay. Point taken. Um, <laughs> it's just, I'm just saying it's a, it's, a, it's a big effort. 100 miles is a big effort too. So for sure, for sure. As Eric can attest better than either one of us. So, so, so definitely. Uh, awesome. Very cool. All right. So we often on this podcast, will circle around to things that we've talked about before. Um, and so we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. We're also going to talk about some science tonight. Um, and we, we promised this would be the, the, the tech podcast. And so we're going to do that tonight. Um, Eric, before we do any of that, you have a little bit of a, a twist on the run. That's right. So tonight we're not going to talk about the run. We're going to talk about the ride. <laughs> and this is actually a, a ride we, we sort of touched on previously. It was the kickoff to my week of idiocy. Uh, 
uh, where I, <laughs> I did two tours, two virtual tours at the same time. And I started them off with two time trials and then I finished with a makeshift time trial at the end because you have to use a time trial at the end of a, of, of a tour. Absolutely. But, but I mentioned this in a previous podcast that I did these two chasing Constellera time trials at the beginning of this effort. And these were virtual, these were on Zwift. And we're going to come back to this later because it ties into something else we want to talk about. But this, this is just a really, really cool thing that Zwift put together. Um, you know, a lot of people do these things just to get the kit. So they'll just kind of like slog through it. But I actually took some time to research this ride and I, uh, I, I put in a really strong effort. It's the first time I'd ever done this course, um, but I did a little research and I figured some stuff out and it was, and, and in that, you know, I always knew that Kanselera was a pretty amazing athlete and he had done a lot of amazing stuff, but. Fabian uh, Kanselera, former, uh, former Fabian. pro cyclist, world tri, tri, uh, time trial champion. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, two-time Olympic time trial champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at the the big riding races, the monuments, uh, three tours of Flanders wins, three Paris Bay wins, uh, Milan San Remo, Remo, sorry, and then uh, eight stages of the Tour de France. And I'm not 100% sure, but I believe he has the record for the most stages or consecutive stages without winning. So he he, he, has, <laughs> he has worn the yellow jersey more than any other person ever in Tour de France history who has never won the race. Right. He has something so, like like 80 days wearing the yellow jersey and he's never actually won the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this later because <laughs> there's a tech piece to it, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the ride instead of the run. So you mentioned the virtual jersey. Did you get a virtual jersey? Yes, I did. I got a really wearing cool it? virtual jersey. It's actually <laughs> it's funny you should ask because it's the only one that I have picked up through doing an event that I actually like mm-hmm. and I wear. Right on. I, I think it comes down to, you know, I, I talk about this all the time. Michelle got on to me about it last week where I'm kind of a purist. And if, if I don't really go and earn it, I don't think I deserve it. And I think in this effort, I earned it. So I wear it and it's cool. Right <laughs> it's on. really cool. I, I get that. I actually get that. I agree with you on that. Um, that, that if I'm going to, I tend to like the shirts that I, that I worked much harder to earn. And those seem to be the ones that, that I wear the most often because they're the ones who remind me of that effort and something that I take pride in, uh, be it virtual um, or be it, be it uh, IRL. So I, I definitely get that. Um, let's, let's, let's fix a few things that we've talked about in the past year. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Gwen Jorgensen. And the reason why she came up in the podcast a couple of weeks ago is we were talking about how she ran at the tens. Uh, she ran that 10,000 meters uh, that we, we talked about at length um, and just really didn't run all that well. Um, and I mentioned then that we had criticized her, particularly me, I had criticized her in the past on the podcast for a lot of the reasons that Michelle recapped a couple of weeks ago, that in 2016 or 2017, when she came out on Twitter and said, I'm going to win the gold medal in the Olympic marathon in 2020. Um, I thought that was really brash. I thought it was very disrespectful, not only to runners around the world, but even to runners here in the United States, um, presuming that she was even going to make the team if she switched over to full-time running. Um, and then over time, that challenge proved, I think, bigger than, than what she originally thought it was going to be. I think that's probably fair to say. But unfortunately, the criticism that I and several other people leveled at her over the course of, of the time that she was trying to get going and trying to work towards this supposed goal of, of winning the gold medal in the marathon in 2020, 
the criticism of her took a turn that unfortunately a lot of criticism of women tends to take in the United States. And that's essentially towards misogyny. Um, and I think that I really saw that very vividly during that broadcast of the tens a couple of weeks ago that we talked about. Um, and so with that, I, I refuse to, to really contribute to that anymore. Um, now, all that being said, she had a pretty good bounce back, right, Michelle? <laughs> yeah, so Sound Running uh, put on another track beat this weekend, uh, Saturday night out in California. And she went out and she ran the 5K. Um, she had a pretty disappointing 10K two weeks ago, ran maybe 31.25. Um, but Thir she I came think it's out- like 32.25, wasn't it? Yeah, sorry, yeah. you're right. <laughs> uh, came out and um, ran a PR, a USA trials qualifier and the Olympic standard, uh, 1507. It was a pretty hot race. I think five people got the Olympic standard in that race. Uh, she came in ahead of Nazalite's Kellen Taylor. She really just kind of knocked it out of the park. So I think, uh, this is really the first time since she left, um, triathlon after Rio in 2016, that we've seen her run in any event on a Olympic, uh, caliber level. So pretty good. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's, it was a great run for her. It's good to see her happy. Um, she said on Instagram, she literally almost quit the sport entirely after that 10 K two weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of good Gwen Jorgensen news. So it'll be interesting to see if she runs the 5k or the 10k, uh, at USA's this summer and where she goes from here. So. Yeah, and I only corrected you on that 32, 20 something just because it underlines how much better her race was this past weekend. Yeah. 1507 versus 3225. Those are different time zones. Yeah, uh, she suffered mightily in that 10K. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. So so good for her. PRing and bouncing back and getting the Olympic trial standard and the Olympic standard. Uh, yeah, I mean that race saw three year. women under 15 minutes. I think it was great race. So it was definitely the race of the night. Good for her. It also underlines, by the way, what we talked about last week with that article from Runner's World by Molly Huddle, yep. uh, where she talked about sometimes it's darkest before the dawn. Yep. Um, sometimes when things really don't appear to be going well, you might be on the verge of a big breakthrough. And evidently that was true for Gwen Jorgensen. So, so yeah. good for her. Glad to see that. Glad to see that. Um, the next thing we want to kind of go back and talk a little bit more about is um, the virtual Boston. Um, Man. So we had a few people reach out to us about virtual Boston, which I appreciate. And we had a couple of other points of view kind of come in and all that sort of thing, which I appreciated. Um, and so we, we always really like when people reach out to us and, and, and help us understand differing points of view. Um, and that definitely happened. So uh, we'll mention a few people here. First person I'll mention um, is, is Aaron Weddy. Um, now, you all will recall Aaron Weddy actually came on the podcast a couple of years ago or a year or so ago uh, and talked about the dopey challenge. Right. Um, and so she actually did that crazy race or series of races in Disney world where you do a 5k, a 10k, a half marathon and a marathon all on successive days. Um, and so, so she did that and she came on the podcast. She talked about that and the challenge related to that and all that sort of thing. Um, she actually texted me afterwards um, after she had listened to the podcast and she said this quote, just listen to the podcast. In 2020, I ran virtual Toronto, not by choice, but because it was the only option still to participate in the event. I could never qualify for Boston. All I've looked into charity, charity participation. Even that seems like it's beyond my ability to raise that much money. I assume Boston was just never in my future. I had zero plans to run any races in 2021. But the idea of virtual Boston, 
that I could participate in the excitement at some level and support the BAA really virtual racing. Boston is basically a charity spot for the BAA, right? Makes me pretty excited. Anyone who knows anything about Boston won't think that I qualified and won't mistake my virtual shirt or medal for the real deal, but it's me getting excited about a race, encouraging people to run a marathon and support the BAA and considering the current climate, these are all good things. I also like your idea of using the virtual lottery uh, 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 for a few future spots. I got in Chicago via the lottery. I may not be fast, but I am dedicated and I work hard. It's nice to know that some of the world events recognize that opening their events in some fashion supports the sport and gets more people motivated and involved. Just my two cents. Um, and then on a similar note, and then, then I want to kind of hear what y'all have to say. Um, we heard from Lane Nichols on, uh, on Instagram, uh, a triathlete, um, and uh, he put, I have a counter opinion to y'all's Boston takes. I love the virtual Boston. Let them dilute the mystique and let me have my Boston jacket. The anti-virtual takes are the same as the anti-charity slot takes. The world ended. I'd love to put Boston 2021 finisher in my bios and wear the jacket. I'd never qualify. A world major without the cost or charity slots or uh, without the cost or charity slots or travel costs or pressure is pretty cool. Um, and so I think anyway, I, I mentioned those, and I think the common thread in the two of those is to say that that we, I think, all of us last week, all three of us last week, said we don't totally understand what the allure of a virtual Boston would be. We can understand why BA is offering a virtual Boston, um, but we we kind of I think pushed away the idea or at least didn't totally appreciate the idea that that virtual Boston would be an opportunity for people who have never really considered being a part of the Boston Marathon community um, to actually get to take part in some way in the Boston Marathon. Um, and I think that's that's pretty cool. Um, what do you all think? Eric? <laughs> all something different. <laughs> Um, Call it something different. So, I, mean, so. I want to be an astronaut. That doesn't mean I get to sit in my office, play an astronaut game on the computer, and get the you know uniform with the American flag that says I'm a I'm an astronaut. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't I I disagree with if you. I think it cheapens the event. You know, there's a reason why you have to qualify. There's a reason why only the qualifiers have the, the jacket and the kit and the whatever. But I think um, what I've seen over the last week is that the Boston Athletic Association, nobody's saying this is a qualifying event. Nobody seems to be saying you're a Boston qualifier if you're one of the 70,000 people that sign up to run the virtual race. I think the issue is you know, it's not even the course though. Like, it's just a run. I can go run 26.2 miles. And, and is and that, I agree is you. that, do I get a boss? Do, do I get to put the name Boston on that? And, and this is, let me, let me say this. This is for me and how I feel about it. I am not trying to impart, you know, that on somebody else. If that does something for them, awesome. I want as many people running as possible. I want people to feel good about their running, to have motivation for their running. I believe in all those points, but for me, it doesn't work. And, and, and so, and I think what you just said, and this is a side point a little bit, but I think what you just said is something we said last week, but that we should have really talked about more. And that's that I am all for anything that will get more people to run, period. And so I mean, this, this is going to get a lot of people to run. <laughs> so if this gets more people to run because they get fired up about it, 
great, fantastic, period. It's a good thing. And so, so, so I, I'm all for it. And, and, and I, that's the reason why I'm okay with color runs. That's the reason why I'm okay with, 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 you know, tough mutter, like anything that gets people off the couch and more active, I'm okay with. And so I, I don't think I'm, I, I said that quite as clearly last week as I wanted to, but that being said, um, the, the point of view that, that Lane and that Aaron shared with us here that, that I don't think that the three of us fully appreciated um, and that I think I appreciate a little bit better now is that, that they want to be part of the event. Um, and, and that generally speaking, Boston is not something that they ever really felt like they were going to be able to be a part of that event, a part of that group. But here with virtual Boston in this real crap year, um, it turns out, well, they can be part of this event. Now, will they be like on the front row and will they be the actual astronauts in the capsule walking on the moon? No, because not everybody can do that. Um, but, but it makes them feel as if they're part of the large community that, that actually does the, the, the event. And, and that, that's a point of view I can appreciate. Um, I mean, Michelle, what do you think? I think I'm way more open-minded and kind of softer towards the idea than when we spoke about it last week. I'll admit, you know, I think it, the news broke just a few hours before we podcast. And it's amazing to me because this is, we're seven or eight days in, and this is still, I think the most talked about thing that I see, hmm. you know, on any uh, running newsletter, uh, social let's run.com. I mean, it's just, I don't know that something gets talked about for so long, you know, with so much activism and energy towards it, but I did really like uh, what Mario Fraioli wrote this morning in um, the, the morning shakeout that came out, sorry, yesterday morning. Um, for a lot of the people that seem to be hung up on, you know, whether you're a qualifier or whether you're an actual finisher. And he made a point and he said the virtual results, if they're even going to be compiled and are listed anywhere, won't have any effect on the actual official results or future qualifications. So any overly protective qualifier who is worried that Joe Schmo will run faster than them on a non-certified course and ruin their day just needs to chill out a bit. <laughs> so, I kind of like that because I felt like somebody needed to maybe tell me to chill out a little bit when we spoke about it last week, because I was all kind of hyped <laughs> up about it. But now, and I think I mentioned this last week, I think I'm all for uh, Boston Athletic Association, New York Roadrunners, Atlanta Track Club, you know, whatever these organizations that, you know, were really their revenue was decimated by the pandemic. I mean, whatever they need to do to run a business, you know, to bring it back <laughs> into the black from what was probably deep into the red last year. And at the same time, you're getting 70,000 people to train for a marathon that otherwise might not. I, you know, I'm, I'm more into it than I was a week ago. All right. <laughs> so, All right. Very good. Okay, so because, and we, we, we know from research why Michelle is more open to it. We do? It's yeah. because George and I are half-wits and you <laughs> use your whole brain. <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to cite actual research. <laughs> I know, uh, me too. So, so, so the actual research I thought you were going to cite is that if you repeat something enough times, people start to believe that it's true, even if it's untrue. So research actually does show that. <laughs> and I, I thought mean, that's what you're going to say, is that after <laughs> after eight days of hearing the same thing over and over again, Michelle's just kind of coming around to something, no. even though she disagrees with it. That's the reality is, is that I don't think I would do this virtual Boston. I did last year. I think it was a good experience for what it was. I don't think I would repeat it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that 
I have an eight minute buffer, I guess, in terms of my qualifying time. And I don't know that that'll be enough. My understanding is they're going to reduce the field size probably to about 20,000 runners. This hasn't come out yet. This is just kind of a speculation and that'll be kind of a reduction across the board in qualifiers and charity runners. So I think it's going to be pretty tough to get one of those in-person spots um, yeah. on that morning, but you know, I think so. We talk about Pike's Peak Marathon. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we should. the 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 second line of the of the or the second paragraph, I guess you could say, of the BAA's release was, "Oh, and by the way, we're going to have a lot fewer in person people." Yeah, um, it's going to so, be pretty small. So, so yeah, and we we don't know the exact number yet, and they haven't announced it yet. But if the normal amount they have is between thirty and thirty five thousand, it's probably going to be, as Michelle said, closer to twenty thousand this year. So George um, and I found another way to torture ourselves. For a race. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It's thanks to friend of the podcast, Lauren Fogarty. But this is the way that things work sometimes on text, particularly for George ridiculous. in 2021, is that Lauren texts us and says, says, hey, do you know anybody who's done the Pikes Peak Marathon? And we're both like, why? Why? You want to do it? You want to do it? Hey, well, you know, they already have the wait list. You better go ahead and put your name on the wait list. And within about six minutes... Lauren, Michelle, and George were all on the wait list for the Pikes Peak Marathon. <laughs> Are we, I think we're 277, 278, We're pretty far down the list. We're pretty far down the list, not gonna yeah. lie. Yeah, so so not only were we were we not fast in getting registered, but we were not fast in actually getting onto the wait list. And so, yeah, there's a good 250 plus people in front of us in line. So and I'm also slim third out of the three of us, there, and I don't, I don't know how you guys got there faster than me. It's really upsetting. So, um, because literally, I know how I did. It's because literally as like as soon as she did it, I started pulling it up and putting myself on the wait list. Like before I even like mentioned to y'all that you should, I started putting myself on the wait list. I went right. right to the website. There was no delay. Like, there, I just. All right. Let's talk about one other thing that, that about oh, the virtual oh, I just I wanted you guys to know that I'm doing the virtual Pikes Peak. <laughs> it's It's on a track. So and cool, man. That, so that, I'm that, that destroy doesn't, that, both of you. That, 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 that doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Are you going to be at sea level? That doesn't hurt my feelings go. at all. If, 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 if I get to go and do in-person Pikes Peak Marathon, I know that your virtual results won't get mixed in with my in-person results. And, and so it doesn't diminish the event for me at all. Josh, um, you'll have so much more oxygen, Eric. <laughs> but speaking of diminishing the event, now this is actually one other thing we do want to say about virtual Boston here. Um, other friend of the podcast, Eric Ledbetter. Um, and so you all will remember when they announced last year that that Boston was going to be um, going virtual. We had Michelle and me and Eric Ledbetter and Dara Steele-Belkin all came together and talked about our experiences with Boston, what we thought about it and all that sort of thing. So Eric actually uh, said last year, Eric Ledbetter, not Eric Hall, um, Eric Ledbetter actually said last year that he didn't really want to run the virtual race and he probably wasn't going to do it. But ultimately he came around and he ended up doing it. Um, and so he um, uh, posted on Facebook a pretty strong condemnation of, of this. He put, uh, quote, looks like, Eric, Eric Hall is laughing already. So um, he texted it to us first, didn't he? He, he texted it to us first, and then, and then he posted it on Facebook for everybody to see, which is the reason why I don't have a hard time reading it out here. But he said, looks like the BAA just took a shit on my virtual Boston experience from 2020. Make no mistake, this is all about the $2.75 million in revenue from adding an additional 55,000 runners at $50 entry fee to the virtual race field. I don't disagree with him on that. 
Congratulations for marginalizing my virtual Boston experience six months after I finished it. If you want to remove said dumping of shit, then open it up on a limited basis to all Boston qualifiers and not Gen Pop. Keep in mind that last year, the BAA only allowed accepted runners to sign up for the virtual Boston marathon race and shut out everyone who ran a qualifying time but didn't make the cutoff. I mean, um, I think the last part of that is exactly why the BAA did not actually shit on his virtual Boston experience because they're not at all trying to make it the same for 2021 as 2020. Like they're super upfront about the fact that this is open to anybody and you don't have to have qualified. Yeah. Um, I mean, talking about diminishing the experience, I, I, I think that's an important kind of point of view that, that we point out. I don't see, I don't think if, if I were going to be doing Boston this fall, which I'm not, but if I was doing Boston this fall, I don't feel like anybody doing virtual Boston would be di diminishing my experience or diluting my experience at all. I do think it's interesting for Eric to say that, that Eric Ledbetter to say that the fact that virtual Boston is open to everyone this year does in some way take away from his virtual Boston 2020. Um, they sold virtual Boston 2020 as, you know, this great unique event and you're going to have the opportunity to do a fall virtual Boston marathon. And then a year later, they're like, Oh, Hey, now everybody else can do it too. I think that's an interesting point of view. Um, I don't I totally know that how last I feel week. about it. What'd you say? I mentioned that last week, just about it cheapening the event. I, I was thinking the 2020 event the true. Well, I was thinking more on the true Boston, like this cheapens the true Boston. See, and I don't, but I don't, I don't feel he, like it does. I don't think it's, Stop, stop for a second. Let me finish my point. Okay. I, I'm just saying that's what I said. And Eric, Eric L, Eric Ledbetter <laughs> seems to think similarly about his virtual Boston, which is more similar to this virtual Boston. Mm -hmm. No, he So does. I do have a question. So we just said a couple of things and I thought it was interesting. So Michelle said, you and I, George said, if this gets more people out to run, that's great. And, and I, I believe that. And Michelle said, this will get more people training for a marathon. And I guess in turn, more people running for a marathon. I'm wondering what the real truth to that is though, like percentage wise. So 70,000 runners, how many of them do you think are really going to train? It's not a real, it's not a real race, right? When, when you're working up for Boston, you're training. So I would say people who train for real Boston, you're in the upper 90%. But training for this event, I wonder what it is. And then the second question, the, the finishing is, how many of them finish? Like, what's the percentage of finishers to starters at real Boston versus this? And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying it's interesting. And I would love to have some information on that. And, and, and that might be information we end up getting afterwards. I can say, um, if, if just looking at, say, Erin Weddy, who we talked about before, Erin um, Weddy, if she decides to do this, she will train for this as hard as I will train or I would train for in-person Boston and I will train for in-person Berlin if it happens. I, I, I feel confident in saying that. So now is she typical of people who are going to sign up for it or atypical? Um, I don't know. Um, and so, so Eric Hall is nodding his head vigorously when I said atypical. And so, so thinking that, that Aaron would be the exception rather than the rule. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I can say there will certainly be people um, Lane Nichols is probably one of them as well, uh, who, who will sign up for virtual Boston. They will feel a part of that group uh, and they will train for this virtual race uh, as hard as they would train for an in-person race. Um, but yeah, in terms of what percentage of the total number of people who sign up, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if it matters, but, but I don't know.
Well, I just look at it from the perspective of, is it really Boston? You know, it's that purest thing in me. It's, is it really Boston? And but I, but, that but was for another, some people, that was something I hadn't thought of. But but for they some people, it. it's as close to Boston they're going to get. As they'll ever uh, no, get. No, 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 no. That, and I, I think I said a few minutes ago, that is awesome and great. It wouldn't work for me. I'd, right. I'd never right. wear the shirt. I wouldn't buy the jacket. I wouldn't eat, like, it, it, it just wouldn't. Well, Here's the deal. You only really wear the jacket when you go to and from Boston anyway. So <laughs> like, I don't know anybody who wears their, I mean, there's so few people that actually wear their Boston jackets unless they're flying to and from marathon weekend. So. Well, and, and I feel like too, and I think this is important to acknowledge that, that Eric and, and you can't, you, you can qualify for Boston. Um, you, if you decided that, that your goal for 2021 was going to be to run a Boston qualifier, that is something that, that you could do. Um, and, and I know that based on the fact that I've run with you before and, and based on what I've literally seen you running since you and I first met in the summer of 1991 at running camp. Right. I mean, you've been a good runner since then. Right. Um, and so, so you are capable of qualifying for Boston and, and you're capable of qualifying for Boston without putting in like years and years and years of like focused effort. You could probably go out in a month from now and run a race that would qualify you for Boston. And, and that's great. But I think that what that means is that, that, that you don't entirely understand the point of view of somebody who, doesn't have that capability. This is not gifted with the, the natural ability or doesn't have the history in the sport that you and I both have. Um, and, and I'm trying to, to, to better understand those people's points of view. I totally understand what you're saying. And Eric is not I, gonna give an inch. <laughs> no, 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 that's no. okay. That's okay. I, I, think, I, I think I've come, I, I've explained my position wrong. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. And part of the reason is because of what you just said. Right. I can qualify for Boston. Right. Um, I don't run marathons. I don't want to stunt my growth. I was told someday if I ran a marathon. <laughs> but no, no, I, I just, it does not work for me because I'm a purist. Mm -hmm. But as I said a minute ago, if it works for somebody else, go do it, enjoy it, and have fun. Yeah. And, and I if I see you, if I see you wearing your Boston 2021 jacket, I'm going to go, hmm. I, did you run the real one or were you one of those other people? And see, see, and I, and I, I that's bad. It's awful. And, and, I know. And, 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 yeah. No, I would think is. that also. Um, for sure. And so, so, and, and, and we, we need to wrap up talking about this because we've got lots of other things we want to talk about, but, but I do think that, that, that I, I just think it's important for us to, to, to remember that, that what motivates us and what we consider to be real um, we, we need to understand that, that other people might be motivated as well. And that doesn't make them less pure um, or less of a purist. It just means that, that, that they have different motivations and, and um, which I can appreciate. So anyway, I actually, I, I feel like after talking about this for a little bit while, we, we, we understand one of our points of view a little bit better. I don't think you're quite such a grumpy old man that I did this time last week, Eric. So that's good. <laughs> we perfectly understood each other last week also. I mean, not, not quite not quite the grumpy old man I thought you were last week, but you know, still a grumpy old man with a, with a graying beard. 
Um, so, all right, let's talk about a couple other quick things. So speaking of Eric and speaking of, of, of his grumpiness and the things he likes to know, uh, I, uh, let's talk real quickly about the, the Lake Biwa Marathon and let's talk a little bit about Yuki Kawauchi since we talked about those last week. So this will be the last thing we kind of circle back around to. Um, so uh, you'll remember we talked about the Lake Biwa Marathon last week and, and it was where 25-year-old Kingo Suzuki became the first Japanese man to run 204. Um, he uh, went, ran 204.56, had a new national record there. And there were uh, 335 finishers of that race, five men under 200, 207, five men under 208, 28 under 209, 42 under 210, and 174 under 220. Um, so there was a piece written in Podium Runner magazine this week by Brett Lerner. Um, and if you're not familiar with, with Brett Lerner, he is um, essentially like Yuki Kawauji's agent, but he's an American guy who lives in Japan and is totally into the running scene over there. Um, and he said, all right, for perspective, this is a quotation from him, only 21 U.S. men have broken 210 in the marathon on a non-aided course ever. There have been other deep marathons, last December's Valencia Marathon and 30 people under 2110, the 1991 London Marathon, so 105 men under 220, but this was on another level. Um, and so over the last 15 years or so, he wrote, it has become uh, common to see half marathons in Japan with 150, 175, even 250 plus runners under 206. How did things get to this point? Um, and I really enjoyed this piece and I actually retweeted it um, because uh, it pushed back on what I described as, as the Japanese system of training. Um, and he said, here's all the various factors that have come together. Um, and, and I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. What Addy Finn wrote about in The Way of the Runner is essentially outdated at this point. Um, and so he either needs to write a new book or we all need to stop reading that book and thinking that it's the authoritative source on the way that Japanese people train. Um, but anyway, he said there were a few things. First thing was concentration. Uh, he said that Lake Biwa this year was a fluke. Um, usually the men's talent pool is stretched between at least four elite level domestic marathons between February and March. Um, between those four races last year, 31 Japan Mace men went sub 210 and 155 went sub 220. But this year, Lake Biha, Biwa was the only one. That was the only option. Number two, the biggest race in the country is the Hakone Ikaden. Um, and it, he talked about how the Hakone Ikaden uh, has been uh, a major event uh, over the course of the last 25 or so years. And it started getting televised on Nippon TV um, over the course of the past 30 years. Um, and it says, uh, especially since 2013, there's been a rapid climb in the performance level, both in quality and depth. The last three national record holders, all three members and alternates for, uh, for the Olympic team uh, and the winners of the last two major Japanese marathons, all the people pushing the envelope right now were Hakone stage winners in college. The successful coaches at the university level are mostly of a generation that grew up watching Hakone on TV, ran it themselves, and are now in charge. Their athletes in turns have grown up watching the race. Almost 65 million people, over half the population in Japan, watched it this year, and it was incredibly exciting. Like the runners and their coaches before them, the kids across the country are watching and saying, I want to do that. That's helped to bring more and more talent, and with younger coaches, better access to training ideas from around the world and the freedom to try them. Um, Case in point, the new national world rec or national record holder from Lake Biwa, Suzuki, is 25 years old. The second place guy is 23 years old. The third place guy was 25 years old. Uh, he says, these are guys who are in junior high school and high school watching Shatara and Osako kick ass at the Hakone TV and saying, that's going to be me, um, which I think is super interesting. So it's like basically their Super Bowl 
has been on the TV for 30 years and kids see that and that's what they want to do. And so their very best athletes try running first, which I've always said is the big cultural difference between the East African countries and the United States. Uh, third is better training. The younger coaches are bringing better training technique. And that's a big change, like I said, from what Finn described. Uh, the fourth thing is the Olympic effect. Um, there were lots of corporate sponsors put in really big bonuses for super high level performances. Um, and the teams and the individuals then invest a lot more into their training and development. So what's going to happen after the Olympics? We don't know. Number five was pacing and expectations. And I think this would be kind of funny. Um, he said that the authorities, quote, the authorities had also decided that three minutes per kilometer was going to be the norm for pacing. 206 marathon pace, no matter what, do or die. People in the transitional period struggled hopelessly with that, but as this generation grew into it, they accepted it as the norm. With enough people thinking that way, it created the same kind of packs as in the half marathons, a bullet train people could just get on and ride until their stop inevitably came for them. Um, and so then pulling it all together at the very end, he said, you've got a massively popular broadcast attracting young talent, effective collegiate and post-collegiate development systems to support large numbers of them, large-scale investments in performing at home soil Olympics, role models to show what can be done, widespread belief that it is doable, and in the case of Lake Biwa, one race to bring them all in and a fast pace to bind them, and the shoes. No real secrets or surprise there, but it took a century to build and it wouldn't be easy to replicate elsewhere. What do y'all think? If, if there's something that agrees with this really well in the soccer world, it's a book called Soccernomics. Oh, yeah, we've talked about it and before. It, I read it last year. Okay, the, the, the part of that book that really rang true with me is, you know, England every year wonders, why didn't we win the World Cup? This small island nation, yes, they have the Premier League and they have all these phenomenal players playing together. But just from a, a pure numbers standpoint, mm -hmm. like how? It, but they're competitive every year. Mm -hmm. And then you take the small countries in Europe, you know, that compete and win at this, uh, on this world stage. Then you take countries like India and China and the U.S., and you start thinking huge numbers of athletes, the talent pool is so deep, the money is there. Why can't they win? Mm -hmm. And it comes down to structure and drive. And if you're, a, if you're a young kid in the United States, you're looking at football, baseball, basketball, right. you know, all these different sports, soccer is starting to grow, right? Mm -hmm. But what if you focused 70% of that talent on one sport? Mm -hmm you're going to dominate. Mm -hmm. But what country can beat us in football, American football? What country can beat us in basketball? <laughs> what country can beat us in baseball? Well, there are countries that can beat us in baseball because we steal all their players for the league. Yeah. But the point being that that's what he's talking about. Yes. This, this mm -hmm. small island nation of Japan is killing it due to focus. Mm -hmm. Focus effort. I agree. I agree. Everybody there tries to be a runner first. And if you can't, then you might try baseball. And, and if you can't do that, then you might try something else, right? But you try running first. Here, we try running last, you know? Um, and and if anything, we only try it because we were forced to do it for some other sport, right? Or um, other sports don't pan out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and so- All so, three of us, all three of us are in that boat. We've yeah. talked about this in the past. George, you were a soccer player. Right. Michelle, you were a rower. I was a soccer player, then I was a swimmer, <laughs> then I became a runner. Right. <laughs> right. 
I totally agree. Some of that also is just the lasting, like the longevity of what can you do to be an endurance athlete into, you know, your late twenties, thirties, forties. And I like, I couldn't really access rowing very easily. And what are you going to have a YMCA soccer league for you guys? Or like, you probably don't even have ACLs left anyway to play soccer. I don't know, but like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I mean, part of it is just a natural transition into something that you can do for a lifetime. Not for me, because, because, because I, I transitioned when I was a junior in high school, I could have kept on playing soccer at that, at that point. But, yeah. but for, but for me, I, I had discovered through running cross country in order to get in shape for soccer, that, that I had some talent for running and then soccer didn't pan out. Um, and, and I don't want to feed into the narrative, by the way, that, that, that we, we get substandard athletes as distance runners. Cause I don't mean that. Um, because I think that ultimately the, the most successful ath- the most successful runners are really good all around athletes. Um, and so I'm not trying to say that the, the people who end up running in the United States are, are not good athletes. They're brilliant athletes. But what I am saying is that there are a lot of people who probably would be really brilliant runners, but they were the third string sweeper for the University of North Carolina soccer team instead. You know, hey, but that, if you got to play Brands Endurance for Chapel Hill, you'd also be fine if you were a third string sweeper. I have no idea what you're saying. I don't even know why I chose UNC there. I think I looked at Eric and thought of North Carolina. But but, what were you thinking about? So yeah, I know, right? But but the what point you... being is that is that talent gets wasted at the University of North Carolina. No. <laughs> 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 no, the, no the, the, the point is is that that there are probably potentially really good runners who, if they followed the path of running, if they had tried to become runners first, they would have said, Oh, I'm I'm brilliant at this sport. I don't want to play soccer. I don't want to do these other things. I want to be a runner because this is what good athletes do. And I don't think that's the, the ideology in the United States. Do you know how many women's national team soccer players came from UNC Chapel Hill? Um, I don't know. A lot. <laughs> but I care far less. <laughs> <laughs> well, just be careful then. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, my, uh, my cousin goes to the University of North Carolina. He's a freshman there now. And, uh, and so I have to, to meter some of the things that I say about the University of North Carolina these days because I'm very proud of my cousin. Um, all right, last thing we want to talk about. We really are going to, are we really going to talk about tech tonight? Are we actually going to get to it? I don't know, it's bedtime. Um, so so, so uh, Eric last week mentioned Yuki Kawuchi's training and he's like, okay, well, how does Yuki Kawuchi train? And so of course I immediately went to Google and said, Yuki Kawuchi training. And I found this interview with him with Deadspin of all places um, from way back in 2013 where I think, Brett Lerner was actually translating for him. Um, and they asked him about his training. And then there's been several other articles that have been written over the course of the past seven or eight years that actually referred to this Deadspin article because evidently Yuki Kawuchi doesn't talk a whole lot to, to the press about his training. But what this one said is that back then, um, he would race on Sundays. That generally tended to be the race day, right? And then on Monday, he would go out and do uh, an 18 to 20 kilometer jog at five minutes per kilometer, which is obviously much slower, two minutes per mile, uh, two minutes per kilometer slower than his race pace, essentially. Um, uh, and uh, that's about uh, 11 or 12 miles. Tuesday, he'd do the same thing. Wednesday, he would do some sort of repeats. So he'd do either tempo runs or 10 by 1,000 meters or 20 by 400. Those are his favorite workouts, he says. Thursday, he'd do that same uh, 11 or 12 mile run, 10 or 11 mile run. Uh, Friday, he'd do that same 10 to 12 mile run. Saturday, he'd do an easy run. And so that would be just sort of like a like an easy six, six mile spin. And then on Sunday, he tends to race. Um, so the two things that stand out about it, one is that uh, he runs singles 
and this is evidently something that's still true. Um, he never really does doubles. He runs seven times a week um, or six times a week. That's it. Um, he doesn't, you know, split that 20 kilometers into 10 K in the morning and 10 K in the evening. He runs single runs. Um, and then the other thing that stands out about it, um, that I, I didn't totally appreciate, but, but I understand better now is that he evidently prioritizes his races. And so, yeah, he races 45 times a year. Um, but he still picks out the races where he wants to do best. And he doesn't put in a 100% effort in every single one of the races that he runs. Um, and so even though he tends to run so many races under 220. Yeah. You'd never know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that we need to appreciate that if he goes out and runs 218, he's a 207 marathoner now and going out and running 218 is not taking as much out of him as maybe we thought it was. Um, but yeah. So, and that's one of only two hard sessions he does every single week. So, so I think there, there might be a little bit, more to his training or, or may, maybe it does kind of fall into a rhythm better than it's not just this haphazard time. serial marathoner. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, that the, all those sub two twenty marathons, this, this just, this is what I'm thinking. Those are really just workouts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then he goes sub two ten yep. for a real effort. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It kind of makes me want to go out and run like, a 26 you know, mile workout. So yeah, it makes marathon in Skidaway so, Island on Saturday. So, so maybe we'll see, but <laughs> but but maybe maybe there's something too like like running several marathons at 10 minutes slower than your than your goal marathon time. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's actually true. But I will say that 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 if you look at um, when we've talked on here before about like uh, Elliot Kipchoge's training, and we talked about uh, Kenanisa Bekele's training before he ran 201 in Berlin, um, and they tend to do these long runs um where they either have a fast finish or they tend to be up tempo so like long tempo now they don't do it every day like matthew futterman suggests the bob larson says um but they do tend to have these these really long workouts they're like 40 kilometers long like nearly marathon distance uh in which they run fairly closer sarah hall evidently does the same thing right the sarah hall talks about how she goes out and runs a marathon distance at marathon pace like on a random sunday um and so I don't know. Maybe there's something to this. We'll, we'll, we'll see. So enough of actually talking about things that we've already talked about. Let's talk about some new stuff. Tech Eric, what you got for us? So the first thing we alluded to it earlier in the podcast, and we talked about the chasing Consolera time trial on Zwift. And th there were two events. Uh, I'm going to talk specifically about, um, and I, I pronounce this improperly all the time, but the Bologna time trial. Bologna. Bologna, yes, the Bologna time trial, and and it'll it'll become obvious why the, why we're talking about this because it has to do with power. So I mentioned earlier that I didn't just go ride this; I I researched it, and I if I had had the time, I probably would have ridden the course two or three times um, just to understand it, but I didn't. So what I did do though, is I, I checked, I checked up on it on the internet. There's a zwiftinsider.com. You can go there and check out the courses. And then I found this video and, um, the video was done by Shane Miller. He does a lot of good, you know, product reviews and GP Llama. Yes, that's right. That is his, his handle. Um, so, but he said this and, and I took it as a coaching comment. He said, he has this thing about basic physics of riding. And he said, the faster you are moving, the more power it takes to further increase your speed. 
So especially during a time trial, if you want to trim time, you have to speed up the slowest sections of the time trial. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why this applies to this time trial is it is a eight kilometer effort. The first six kilometers are flat or down. They're a little bit rolling and a little bit down. And the last two kilometers are 12 to 14. I think at one point it gets a 16% grade up. Whew. And what his, what, what Shane said was you should split your time. Your first six kilometers, the time it takes you to do that should be about the same as your last two kilometers. And just, just consider that, you know, from a running sense or a riding sense, or even a swimming sense, or even a driving sense, how much slower you're going and how that ties into what he said about, if you want to trim time, speed up your slowest sections. So, but he said, you know, this is going to take um, a lot of brain power, especially during the first six kilometers, mm -hmm. because you're going to want to keep it under FTP for six kilometers when you know you, you just flat out know you can go faster. And then when you hit that wall, literally that two kilometer wall, you're really going to need to dig deep. Mm -hmm. And, and I took this to heart. I, I thought about it for a while. I, I really, really planned this out. And, uh, I, I did exactly what he says and it worked. Mm -hmm. I about split my time. Like I told you at the beginning, I felt like this was a great effort. I felt proud to, you know, be able to wear that jersey, quote unquote, wear that jersey on Swift. <laughs> and I haven't taken it off since. So, so because it meant something to me. And and so what why we're talking about this from a tech perspective, you know, it's a virtual ride at Swift, and we've talked about all that, and that's all interesting. What allowed me to do that was I know about what my FTP is. I can see with constant feedback what my power is. I knew to keep my power at about, I think I was in the range of 300 uh, watts during that six kilometer section. And when I hit the two kilometer section, I knew to bump it up to 350 mm -hmm. and just hold that. Like I, I knew that was what I could do. And that, I think uh, a couple of days later, I was jogging with Grace and we were talking about this and the question came up, does the same apply to running? Mm -hmm. If we could measure power consistently with this same thought of go faster of your slowest sections apply, and especially in the sense of a hill. So if I ran a six kilometer flat and a two kilometer up and I could measure my power, would I be faster if I eased on the six and I really hammered on the two. And, and, and so I, I think I, I, I've thought about this enough that I, I have my own answer, but I wanted to pitch that to you two and say, okay, you've got your chorus. It's giving you your power. Does the same philosophy apply to running? I will say, yeah, I think it does. Um, because, because of what you described that the amount of effort that it takes you to run slightly faster on a flat or on a slight downhill is not really going to net you all that much. Um, whereas if you put in an effort to, to, to speed up a little bit going uphill, that can net you more. And so, so to, to put this in real terms, let's say you're running along at nine miles per hour. That's 640 pace, right? Nine miles per hour, 640 pace. Uh, you run a mile at 640 pace. Somebody else runs... 10 miles per hour, 
right? So they're running, you know, so much faster than you, 10 miles an hour. They're only going to get 40 seconds for that over the course of that mile, because that's six minutes per mile, right? Now, let's say those two people hit a hill, and that hill is a steep hill, like the one you're talking about in Bologna, and it's also a mile. You're talking about somebody now going three miles per hour, which is, is 20 minutes per mile for that one mile per hour improvement, you're going to get five minutes. Um, and so, so yeah, I would say that, that, that it holds that, that if you can speed up a mile per hour, or you can, can put in more effort, you'll get more bang for your buck for that effort when you're going uphill and everybody's overall pace is slower. So that, that's what and, I would argue. Yeah. And that's where I started. I actually started there and I said, you know, this is a straight application. I can, mm -hmm. I can bring it straight across. And then I started doing the whole engineer thing. And I Good. said, I'm going to, I'm going to completely overthink this. <laughs> and, and I've, I've been able to convince three out of the four people I've talked to about what I'm about to say. Okay. There's a significant difference. And this is why I think power is significantly different between running and cycling. It's significantly different in how we're going to have to figure out how to apply it. There's a significant difference between pedaling a bike and running. Whether I'm going uphill, whether I'm going downhill, or whether I'm on the flat, I'm pedaling little circles at the same distance every time. And I'm actually using the same muscles. Whether I'm going up or down, I'm using the same muscles. My knees aren't going any higher or any lower. My heels aren't going any higher or any lower, but, but by maybe you know millimeters, half an inch maybe. So I can directly compare the power I'm using on that flat to the power I'm using on the climb. And I can, because I can measure it, I can be really accurate about what I put out. Now, when I'm running, I have to lift my knees higher. I have to lift my heels higher. I have to use a whole lot more power on a climb. You know, as well as I do, going a mile per hour faster on a climb is disastrous, can be disastrous. Um, just because of the differences and how you're applying that power to the road. You're now using different muscle sets and this, that, and the other, which can be good or bad. But to try to apply that same philosophy to those two different situations, I don't know that it works. And then you layer on one more piece, the speed at which you travel, especially in a time trial on a bike. Um, when drag actually plays a part in that. Whereas in running, very rarely does drag really play a part into it. And what, what people don't keep, what people don't understand is uh, drag, the, the force being you know, applied to you, uh, what you have to push through on a bike, right? You know, the, 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 air, the air resistance is actually proportional to the square of the speed you're going. Right. Right. So, so as you increase speed, you increase the drag by the square. So when you look at it like that, adding a little more speed when you're going fast takes a lot more power to overcome that force. Right. Whereas when you're climbing, now you're not worried about aero position and because the drag is inconsequential, especially up a 12 to 14% grade. Right. And now it's just, it's just those little tiny circles with your, with your, your uh, pedals and getting up the hill. So I think there's a lot to be said for what you said, because uh, we ran on a cross country course in high school, the, the county course, and it didn't matter how fast you ran that downhill, 
the flat and the uphill were what made the race. Um, but I think there's something to be said about how you really can't compare that power application in the cycling to the running because it's just so different. So, so what's the takeaway? So, so <laughs> I, I think you're telling me I'm wrong and that's okay. <laughs> I'm we telling don't need you running power yet until yeah. we have a better way to use it. I'm telling you, so I'm telling you two things. I'm, I'm using this example of kind of blowing your mind on what you thought. Cause I, I thought the same thing you did. I think that's just the way we've been trained. It makes sense to a runner, but I'm, I'm using that as a way to say, to go back to our running power is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Cycling power was figured out. It works. And in that application and that time trial, it was the bomb, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I can't do that. I can't do that. It doesn't matter whether I have a stride pod. It doesn't matter whether I have a Garmin watch with a chest strap. It doesn't matter whether I have a chorus. I can't do that with running because it's not just power. It's how you're applying that power. Mm, okay. Now I'm lifting my knees higher. I'm driving, you know, everything's different. Once the mechanics change, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that I'm putting out the same amount of power. Now I'm inefficient. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so, so it's just different. So that, yeah. that, that's my tech point on this one. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I see your point now. And I, and I, and I, and I agree with you that I think that the, 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 the inefficiency that potentially gets woven into running is a bigger mitigating factor with running power than it is with cycling power. Cause, cause you can be an inefficient peddler and you can with fatigue become a more inefficient cyclist, but yes. the Delta between when you're at your most efficient as a cyclist and least efficient in a cyclist as a cyclist is far smaller than the Delta between you when you're at your most efficient as a runner and your least efficient as a runner. I agree with you on that. And so I think that is an interesting point. Um, and, and something to continue thinking about. I have been continuing to take power here. Um, I, I have been using it on my, my runs. I've been gathering on the Coros watch. I have a run tomorrow morning. I will gather it then. I'm doing yet another race this weekend that we'll talk about next week. I'll gather the power data then. And so we, we will have plenty of data to look at here to see whether, whether or not power is something that turns out to be useful. But I think that that idea of inefficiency being something that compromises the objectivity and the ultimately utility of power is an important point. Yeah. So thank you for that, Eric. All right, we're gonna have You're to welcome. save the Diodora carbon shoes for next time, but I am excited to talk about those. <laughs> um, um, all right, everybody, Michelle, glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks, George. Um, Eric, of course, we're glad you're here too. Thanks, George, it was Thanks. fun. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, ITL Coaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, 
Facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for SlayRx. The number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.